We are going to be in John chapter 19 today. If you want to turn there. We're also going to be in Romans 8. So you'll either need two fingers or two Bibles. Mark your place. We're going to begin in John 19 and then bounce over to Romans chapter 8. While you're turning, I just want to take a moment and introduce a book to you. Our community groups are going to be studying a book study in the coming weeks, and I want to show you one of the books we're going to be looking at here. Uh, the name of this book is called A Place to Belong. It is by author Megan Hill. And uh, if you're a community group leader, don't leave church today without picking yours up. I have them for you in my office. Uh, if you're not a community group leader, you can find these easily online. Or if it's not the best season for you to be shopping online, come to us. We have some extra ones. So uh, A Place to Belong. It's a really good book. Megan Hill wrote it. And the way she structures it is she goes through all of the terms that in the New Testament you see for the church. All right? Like called or flock or beloved or body. And she will discuss, really, from a biblical perspective, who are we supposed to be as a church? It's really exciting. I think you'll like it. It's really straightforward, easy to understand. And she's got a really good chapter on the section that we are going to be talking about today, which is the church as family, the church as family. So pick it up, grow with us. We hope you'll join us in this upcoming study. It should be a lot of fun. Now, let's hit the ground running here in John 19. hope you found your place. We're going to begin in verse 26, John 19, 26. If you're familiar with the chapter, you'll know that I'm dropping you into a solemn, shadowy yet redemptive moment because Jesus is on the cross. All right, we're, it's something to cry about. It's a very sad, very sad moment as we see Jesus hanging on the cross. He's there with a small group of people. If you can imagine, if you dare, the scene in your mind, there's a small group around him, apparently mostly women. And when you think about Jesus on the cross, he's not there preaching sermons. All right? He's not teaching long lessons from the cross. In fact, John only records what amounts to 12 words in the English language that Jesus is going to speak from the cross, such that when he speaks, we need to pay attention to what he's saying. For instance, later, he will simply say, it is finished. Right? He's trying to communicate that his work to procure the redemption of all the cosmos is now done. He has merited all that needs to be done to redeem everyone. It is finished, he says. But before he gets to that, he's going to speak beautifully to one of the things redemption in Jesus buys for us. All right? And he actually spends more time talking about what his redemption earns and the fact that it's finished. And that's where we arrive here 
in verse 26. Listen to what he says. As he's hanging on the cross, he looks down and he sees his mama. And he speaks to her. And he says, woman, behold your son. This is very sweet to be talking about on Valentine's Day. Very loving. He says, woman, behold your son. And then he turns to John, his disciple. Not John the Baptist, but the other John. And he says, behold your mother. And from that hour, John the disciple took her into his own home. Now, I don't want you to miss what's happening here as Jesus is addressing his few followers from the cross. Because when John decides to record the most climactic event in all of human history, the moment of Jesus' death, he decides to connect it with family. But he does it in a little bit different way than perhaps you anticipate. There's a twist in what he's doing here. Let's note what that is. Now, Mary, at this point, is a widow. She's probably in her early 50s. Now, bear in mind, in that culture, life expectancy was about 37. So that would have made her the equivalent in our culture about 95-year-old woman. And she was completely dependent upon her oldest son, Jesus, for her well-being, her health care, her income was all wrapped up in Jesus. And here he is dying in front of her as was appropriate and customary in that culture, completely normal that we would see Jesus handing them her over to another's care. But here, here's the twist. Usually, if the older son dies, the widow is now in the care of the next oldest son, right? That's the way it works. Now, we know Jesus had four brothers, at least. There was James... And Joseph Jr., I wonder if they called him Jr. If he was from Tennessee, he'd been called Jr. Jude, Simon. But get this, Jesus decides not to entrust the care of his mother to these biological brothers. Instead, he turns to John, not related, John the disciple, and he said, look, he's your mama says to her, here's your son now. I'm dying, but here's your true son. Why does he pick John? We don't hear that John is wealthy. We do know he's going to end his life in exile. Why does he pick John? Well, here's, here's why. And here's what's important to us today. He picks John because from all indications up until this point, Jesus' biological brothers did not believe him. They were not followers and John, though not biological, did believe him. He was a follower, especially known as being the beloved disciple of Jesus. So this is what Jesus is trying to teach you from the cross itself. In picking John, he means to highlight Mary's new relationship with her family of faith. It's not so much physical care, though it is that, that Jesus is trying to teach us here. Rather, in his death, a new family is formed. In Christ, we are to gain our new and true family identity. 
Now, lest we're tempted to think this is a one-shot, one-and-done moment of Jesus, it's not the case. He teaches this elsewhere in the Bible. Flash back with me. You can turn there if you want to Matthew 12. Matthew 12 is a more common scene in the life of Jesus. We find him in a town, and he's teaching. And imagine if I was Jesus, he might have a few followers out here listening to him, just like we're doing here. And then all of a sudden, in Matthew 12, verse 48, we see someone coming off the side stage, so to speak. As Jesus is talking, a man walks up to Jesus, and he comes to Jesus, and he's like, hey, Jesus, um, your mom and your biological brothers, they're here, and they just want a word with you. Right, right in the middle of Jesus' teaching. And how does he respond? Well, he responds with these words in verse 48. Jesus replied, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, he's not ignorant, right? He knows exactly who's who. But then he says, oh, This is a good point. Who are my brothers and my mother? And then, very dramatically, he stretches out his hand just like this to the people gathered. And he says, Here! are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. What a powerful moment. He's saying the same thing. In Christ, we gain our new and our true identity. That's what we're going to explore briefly here together today. The new identities that are given to us by God in Christ. I was speaking this week with one of our international workers, John Latham. Brilliant guy. I love talking to him. I learned so much. He's overseas working uh, in conjunction with our church. And I was talking to him about this topic and about the relationship that, what's Jesus saying here about the relationship between biological and spiritual family? What's going on? And he was very helpful. He teaches a seminary, smart guy. He said this. He said, you know, our new identity does not erase our former family relationships, but it does shift our core identity to Christ and his church. And that's what we're going to talk about today is a core identity. Obviously, since Jesus takes the time to care for Mary, he's not erasing our biological relationships. Many of them are very healthy, God-glorifying, just good families that God has given us. And yet, Jesus is able to say with all sincerity, here are your brothers, your sisters, and your mother. What I want to look at here today are going to be three identities in your new and true family. Three new identities that God gives you in your new and true family. Go ahead and flip now to Romans 8 if you want to follow along. Hopefully you still have your finger there. Romans 8, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans chapter 8. Now we're jumping into a new context. If you're familiar with Romans, you'll know in chapter 7 of Romans, we have learned that we cannot overcome death by ourself. Paul puts on a parade of death, of coming from the law and self-righteousness, 
And he finally says, Jesus is the only answer to this. And now in chapter 8, he starts to share the benefits of coming into Jesus. What we now have and what we'll see are our identities. Here's the first one. I call it adopted children of God. Here's the first identity in your new and true family, adopted children of God. As we read this text, what I want you to do, play a little game here. If you're reading along, play a game. See how many times in these four verses you count family language. Not biological family, spiritual family language. When Jesus wants to teach you what he bought for you on the cross, he's going to use family language a lot. Four verses, count how many times you see family language beginning in verse 14 of Romans chapter 8. This is why we say at TCC, church is not just like a family, church is a family. Romans 8, 14, listen to this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of who? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see that family language? A lot. I also want to pour out, pour out something very important as you're reading this passage. Look at all the plurals. All right? Lots of we's in there. I could have made this sermon point say, you are an adopted child of God. You are an adopted child of God. That would have been true, but that's not how Paul speaks. Paul speaks in the plural. He writes, sons of God. Adoption as sons, children, not child of God, but children. Heirs, not heir, but heirs and fellow heirs. He's being plural to prove a point. From the get-go, we are in this together. You can take a moment if you're here. If you're online, it won't work. But if you're here, look behind you for a second, literally. To your side, now don't cough on anybody, don't sneeze. To your right, to your left, these are your fellow heirs, all right? These are your brothers and your sister and your mother. It's not just me saying it. It's Jesus, it's Paul. We are together adopted children of God. And it's beautiful. In Christ, you have a new and true identity. And here it goes. It's not an individual one. All right? Your new identity is a family one. And that is much, much better. I was driving here today from my house. I took Rock Quarry Road here. And on the way, you have the Raleigh National Cemetery, which is a military cemetery. And you drive by there and you notice that each headstone is uh, pretty simple. It's one of those uh, marble or granite, and you've seen the shape. It's oval at the top, but then it comes down, and they're, they're just about this. They're very simple, but, but then when you look at all of them together, 
man, it's powerful. I don't know if you've ever been to a military seminary, a cemetery, not seminary, cemetery. <laughs> Same thing for some, <laughs> my experience. But you go to the cemetery and you see rows and rows and rows of this sameness. And it's powerful because they knew they're fighting for something bigger than just themselves. They are better together. I don't know how much you follow modern music, but uh, the Grammys are coming up. Some people really get into the Grammys March 20, no March 14th this year, the 2021 Grammys. What if I told you that up against Justin Bieber was a guy named Will Champion, all right, for best pop performance of the year? Will Champion is up. You know him? Probably not, but you may know him from his group identity. He's the drummer for Coldplay. Maybe you know Coldplay. He's the drummer. Would he be as famous without Coldplay? No, he has a group identity. Some of you are like, I don't know new music. Here's another one. From the 90s, have you heard of Jim Sonfeld? Jim Sonfeld was one of the top artists of the decade. In fact, he still has one of the top 20 albums of all time, Jim Sonfeld. You may never have heard of him, but he's the guitarist for Hootie and the Blowfish. Huge band, had a huge album. His identity is better when it's wrapped up in a group. And that's what God is holding out here for you today. Don't try to get through life based on your own old individual identity. Grab onto this new one. You're adopted into the children of God. My point is it's good news that we're better together. We have a family identity. We're in it together. Reminds me of an old joke I heard about a pastor. Who, this country pastor found out that one of his congregants was going through a rough patch and the congregant couldn't pay his water bill. And so the pastor says, I'm going to reach out to him. I'm going to write him a little note. He sends it off to him. You know what the note said? Get well soon. <laughs> Wait for it. <laughs> Not bad. Now, hopefully we have a little better pastoral care here at TCC, but the jokes aren't any better. <laughs> but they were in it together, right? They're in it together. And we must realize, TCC, we must realize that the good news of Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on our behalf started with John 19 that we saw Jesus hanging on the cross God's righteous anger that was against us together, it has been satisfied in Christ. The resurrection of Jesus that proves and validates the offering that Jesus made, it is for all of us. And the Father's face that turns towards all of us believers in affectionate forgiveness is a family forgiving. We are in it. Together, God adopts us together, according to this passage. Years ago, when I traveled to China to adopt my wonderful baby girl, I remember at that time in China, you could not adopt someone under 12 months. 
And once they were 14 years old, you could not adopt them. So see the limiting factor. And I knew some families wanted to adopt more than one child, but you could not adopt two children if they were from different families. See all the limitations? God's adoption is not like that. He adopts us biologically unrelated all together, and your local church is where you live as God's family. Now, here's one great practical benefit of having a family identity as children of God that tops all other identities that you might be trying to claim for yourself. And here it is. Our culture demands that we pick identities, right? But here's the thing about your identity as children of God and Christ. It cannot be lost. It cannot be lost. Think about it. Your adoption is based on the Father's desire and the work of Jesus, so it is secure. Now measure that against other common identities. What about the identity of being competent? A lot of dudes have this. I am competent. I'm a problem solver. I can figure my way out of different things. Let me tell you, that identity is made of porcelain. Just a touch of Alzheimer's, your identity of problem solving is gone. Better to take your identity in the children of God. What about our appearance? Lots of people struggle with this identity. I have a certain look. I have a certain beauty. I have a certain fitness. I have a certain strength. Preacher Tim Mackey recently said in his sermon, the church is the only place where your identity is not secured by your pant size. Right? I got some new pants for Christmas, and these are the stretchy kind. Because <laughs> over Christmas, gained a few pounds. I need them to stretch. Then I had COVID. I lost some weight. Now I'm stretching back out. But my identity is not defined by my body image. That's going to fail you. Best to put it in your identity as a children of God. Could be your identity chiefly right now as a mother. Could be tied up in your occupation. We have to search ourselves and long for the identity of the children of God. Teenagers can be athlete, can be artist, but those will fade away. Better to take the identity of being in the children of God. Now, look at verse 15 here in Romans 8. Paul tells us that this identity involves being liberated from slavery to sin and being granted the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says in light of verse 15. He says, We enjoy the liberty of the children of God. We're set free from the hold of the old family. No longer is its influence dominant. Even if we're not entirely free from its atmosphere or its menacing influence, it is not dominant. No other identity helps you live as a forgiven, liberated child of God, not child of sin, child of God. We must find our identity if you want to get over guilt from your sin, you have to find it in your identity as children 
of God. Also, look in verse 15. Paul describes the intimacy of having a heavenly father. He talks about crying out to God. You see that? Crying out, Abba, Father, as children. Notice something that I missed. He says, we cry out, Abba, Father. He doesn't just say you or I. He says, we cry out, Abba, Father. I know in my own life as a father, if I see that one child needs something, I'm very sensitive, I try to be sensitive to that, but if I see that they're all have a need together and they're telling me, that's very powerful. And that's what the biblical picture is here. Needy children together. And we all turn to him as little children and experience his tender, loving care. Look in verse 17. Shows us another benefit of God, being in God's family. It says, if we are children, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. What does it mean to be an heir? I am an heir of Ken and Sue Williams, my parents. I have two brothers. We are all heirs. We know what's going to happen. We know what inheritance might be uh, coming to us. We know about what that will look like. But what does it mean to be an heir with Christ? What should we expect? Well, I see at least two things here that stand out. Verse 17, he says, We suffer with him, Jesus, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Being in God's family means we will suffer with Jesus to be glorified like Jesus. Now, we're going to talk more on glory in a moment. Just a word on suffering here. Again, I'll keep pointing out the we. If I have to go through suffering, I love that we right there, right? I don't want to do it alone. If I have to go through suffering, I want my church family with me. You guys know that my family recently got over uh, as much as you can of having COVID, all eight of us got it together. It's the way we roll. And it was very, very comforting to get your texts, your letters, your gifts. I would not want to do that alone. Suffering should not be done alone. It should be done with the family of God. You know, Friday was Chinese New Year. I don't know if you're aware, but over 3 billion people on the earth are going to celebrate this Chinese New Year, and we're actually working, TCC, in Malaysia with a Chinese church plant. Malaysia isn't in China, but the planter is Chinese, and he's living in Malaysia. His name is Chris. We've been to visit him. I've been in his church. It's a wonderful thing there. But Chris recently wrote an article about when he became a believer as a Chinese man, his family didn't take it too well because in the Chinese culture, to accept Christ is now means that you're not Chinese enough, all right? You've lost some of your Chineseness because you accepted Jesus. That's the way they made him feel, made him feel ostracized, made him feel alone. But he wrote an article recently, and this is what he said. He explained how the challenges of his earthly family actually pushed him to appreciate his eternal church family in Jesus Christ, united in harmony around the gospel. Even your most intense suffering is to be met with your church 
family. That's much better than going it all alone. And here at TCC, I just want to say this. Because of your identity as children of God, you don't have to go it alone. We want to be family to you. Dive into relationship. That's your part. Dive into relationships here at TCC. I was in a virtual small group gathering recently of some church folks, and it was so touching. One of the uh, people in the group, you know, we're looking all at screens. That's the way we do community now. And one of the screens starts talking, and the person there just said, I just want to tell you guys how appreciative I am of the love you've shown me during this season because they were going through a really intense season of pain and unsolicited. This person just offered and said, I've never experienced anything like this. This is new to me, and I just want to say thank you. And I said to my heart, amen. That is the children of God being family together. There's much comfort in being an adoptive family for God. Let's keep moving. That's first identity. Second key identity also related in your new and true family. Here's the second identity that we get on. I call it a brother and sisterhood. A brother and sisterhood. Let's back up to verse 12 here. And just notice, very simply, how does Paul address the church? Verse 12, so then, brothers. Now, if you're reading a Bible worth its salt, you might have a note here, a footnote, that says Paul uses brothers as a shorthand or a different way to say brothers and sisters. So let's just be clear. He's not just talking to the men. He's talking to brothers and sisters. That's just the way he talked. Everybody, there's a brother and sisterhood. In fact, if you turn over to Romans 16, you see him commending a sister like a brother would. He's demonstrating what does it look like to be a brother. Verse verse 1 of chapter 16, he's advocating for a female church member, Phoebe. And he says, I commend to you, not just Phoebe, but our sister, not just sister, but our sister, Phoebe, a servant of the church here, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Help her in whatever she may need, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. See that brotherhood here? Help her, man. She's my sister. She's helped me. She's my patron. You welcome her in a way that's worthy of who you are as saints. Peter speaks this way. James speaks that way. Whenever they want to get the church's attention, they speak in brotherhood language, in sisterhood language. And it's to remind you that when you come into God's family, you're not an only child. You have a brotherhood. You have a sisterhood. Paul speaks on this again. 2 Corinthians 13.11. Paul says, finally, brothers, rejoice. This is what brotherhood and sister is. Rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. If our brother and sisterhood were Valentine's Day candy, its flavor would be harmony. All right? That's what he's saying. Harmony. That's what brotherhood and sisterhood should be. Earlier, I shared this book with you from Megan Hill, A Place to Belong, that we're going to read 
together. She writes about this very verse in that book, and she says, along with this verse, for every Christian there ought to be an oughtness here. This verse comes with some strings attacked. Listen to what she says. These family terms are not incidental. They compel their hearer to live as the family they truly are. We too ought to think of and speak of our fellow church members as family. Committing to this family is not optional or incidental. It's a basic fact of our life in Christ. Not optional, the basic fact of our life in Christ. When we gather with the church, we come with the declaration of Christ, talking about from the cross, how he spoke about family, and the apostles, when we come here together, we come with the declaration of those guys singing in our ears, behold your son, behold your mother, behold your brothers and sisters. We are backed up on this by Jesus, the apostles. We are a brotherhood and sisterhood together. Now, what does this mean? Good to talk about it. What does that mean practically? Hill gives just three things I want to share briefly. Cover weaknesses and love. That's what we do as a brotherhood and sisterhood. We celebrate our successes and we cultivate sincere affections. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to cover weaknesses and love as a sisterhood, as a brotherhood? Well, the scripture is helpful here. Colossians 3.13. A verse given to us to spark this type of love. Colossians 3.13 says this, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, guess what? Guess what a brotherhood does? We forgive one another. As the Lord has forgiven you. Uh-oh. That's some deep forgiveness, right? That's the real kind so you must also forgive one another. There is a family loyalty to the true church that demands we forgive one another. We stick together if somebody wrongs you. We don't run out. This Christmas season, our family usually takes a big drive over the mountains to see my family. I've done it for years. It's a great time. We get about 12 kids Seven adults together in the same house. We always have a really good time. It's fun. We laugh, cry. It's good family time. But inevitably, with all of our imperfections, somebody will usually say something. It will just <clears throat> get at you. By the time you're driving home, the six hours over the mountains, you're like, oh, man, baby, I don't know if we can do this again. I just <laughs> it's just emotionally, you know, you know the drill, right? Well, this year, of course, it didn't happen because of COVID. And I was blown away because right about Christmas, I get a text from my nephew. And this is not five-year-old nephew. This is college-age nephew. And he texts me, and he says, man, we really miss you because Christmas doesn't really start for us until your family gets here, Uncle Travis. And I'm like, oh, man. Oh, man. So I'm like, all right, let's go back now. That's what it means for love to cover weaknesses. His love covered my weakness. You forgive each other. Well, what does it mean to celebrate successes as a sisterhood? One of the things 
that happens in a sisterhood is you celebrate the successes of others. Paul says it differently in Romans 12.10. Paul says this, you need to outdo one another in showing honor. Showing honor to God, well, that's part of it, but he's talking about showing honor to the sisters, right? Now, this might go against our natural instincts. It's hard to genuinely celebrate someone else's successes. I'll be honest with you. It's not how my heart was born. That's something that had to be recreated by the Holy Spirit. And most of us are that way. See somebody gaining something that you're not gaining, and to celebrate it is tough. Christian counselor Christina Fox writes about this, and she's speaking specifically to single women who might be caught up in this moment where they're feeling like a have-not. Someone else has gained something that they have. And this is what Christina Fox, she said. She said, think about a situation. What if a couple announces their engagement? And you've longed to be married, but instead you have to rent another bridesmaid dress? Do you rejoice or feel bitter at that news? Now, she connects it to family here. She says, as redeemed saints and children of a living God... We can seek our fulfillment in Christ, our fulfillment in Christ, not in what we do or don't have. In Him, we have all we need. In Jesus, we find meaning and purpose. In Jesus, we find our identity as those who have been rescued from sin and adopted into God's family. All of our longings are ultimately met in Him. He is our heart's true treasure. Content in Christ, our brother or sister's joy can be our joy. She's getting at the real issue. Discontentment in Jesus can block our brotherhood and our sisterhood. United in Christ, however, the good that happens in their lives is also your good. See how that works? I'm over here. You're over here. You get something good. We're connected because of Jesus, and we can celebrate together. The security of being with sisters in God's family helps us celebrate the successes. Then a small, a different small group recently here at TCC, and uh, we were tracking along with one of the members who was uh, getting a new job and transitioning. And every week there would be a different update. Yeah, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm at. No, this is where I'm at. How's it going? And I started noticing this again. This is a Zoom thing. I started noticing when he would talk about it, there would be this weird different noise from the screens. And one day I looked up on a certain screen and there was a girl and she would literally clap. <laughs> Every time he would talk about his job success, she would get so excited. She'd be like, oh, man, she's secure in who she is in Christ so she can celebrate his successes. One other thing, what does it mean to cultivate sincere affections as a brotherhood? Sincere affections as a brotherhood. What does that mean? We talked about celebrating successes or covering weaknesses in love, but what does it mean to cultivate sincere affections as a brotherhood? Again, Paul's language, even though it's 2,000 years old, it's very helpful here. It resonates when he says, Romans 12, 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
I read a story this week. Maybe you read it, popular book. J.D. Vance has a book, Hillbilly Elegy, and it's about his time growing up in the 80s in impoverished Appalachia and just tells a story of how poverty wrecked his family. And he has one story about how he's driving down the road, just him and his mama, and because of all the issues in their life, she's an alcoholic. And unfortunately, she stops the car at one point, and she just gets bitterly mad at him in the back seat. He's eight years old. She says, you know, I'm going to pull this car over. But she actually does pull the car over, and then it's on. She goes after him. Thankfully, he bolted from the car, and then it's a race across the cornfield. Eight-year-old J.D. and then Mama chasing him. Well, he outruns her. He comes to this farmhouse. He finds someone home, and they call 911, and they hide out. Eventually, the police come. He watches them handcuff his mom, take her away. That leaves him in another sitting alone black and white police car, and he's just in shock. And then he said, everything changed when my 13-year-old sister came in. She sat beside me in the police car. Now we're just alone. And she holds me so tight, I can hardly breathe. And then he said, later, my papaw came along. My papaw's grandfather. If you're from Appalachia like me, papaw's grandfather. Papaw came along. A man I'd never seen show emotion in all of his life. And he just laid his hand on my forehead, and I saw my papa begin to weep like a baby. That's what it means to weep with those who weep. It's a true sign of brotherly affection to rejoice when they rejoice and also weep when they weep. How do you cultivate that? Well, ask yourself that question. Let me just throw that one back to you. I don't have all the answers. Ask yourself this week, how do I cultivate sincere affections, not just with my best friend outside the church or my extended family? That's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about within the church body that God has placed you in. How do you cultivate sincere affection? It might just be a text. I got a text this morning, stirred up affections from a brother in the church, very short. Man, it's a small thing. It worked. It might be going and sitting with someone. In our small group, I'm going to have to tell you, i got a confession. With the great small groups at TCC, but ours has the best people, okay? Our small group, because of COVID, we were talking about uh, my son here in high school, coming up on his last soccer game, senior night, and we were talking about his senior night, And because of COVID, there'll be no one in the stand. And someone in our group just said, why don't we all get together and try to somehow sneak in the stands so there'll be people there? That's a small thing. But it's an expression of affections, and it lands on someone. You think, oh, we're a brotherhood here. We're a sisterhood. Do that work this week. Think how you can cultivate sincere affections for people. Now, we've looked at couple things here. Adopted children of God, that's one identity. A brother and sisterhood, that's another identity. Got one more here for you. This one might sound a little strange. Your identity is little brothers and sisters of Jesus. Little brothers and sisters to Jesus. You say, wait a minute, Jesus is my Lord and he's my Savior, he's my God. 
I don't know about this big brother stuff. Where are you getting that? Well, a couple places here. Look at verse 28 in Romans 8. Again, note the plural those that Paul chooses to use on this family group passage. Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, here he's going to say all the good things. Here's what they're working towards. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. That's the good that God is working towards so that we, those, plural, will be conformed to Jesus. Things happen in your life and you say, well, they're happening for good. What Paul means by that is you're being transformed corporately to look more and more like the image of Jesus Christ. In order, he keeps going. Sometimes we don't when we post it on our fridge, but Paul keeps going. He says, in order that Jesus might be, might prove to be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is not just Lord, Savior, God. He's the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean, firstborn? That language is weird. What does it mean? It doesn't just mean born first, although he was the first to rise in resurrected glory, vindicating his sacrifice. What it means, in its fullest sense, is among us, among the brothers, he is the greatest and big brother in history. In the Old Testament, in the Psalms, it's connected to royalty. He's firstborn because he's the greatest and the biggest and the best big brother possible. You see, there's a sameness to us and Jesus because we are in him. We're united to Jesus. Verse 29 says we're being conformed to his image. So there's a sameness that makes us brothers with Jesus. We're in the same family, but there's also a very proper distinction. As big brother, Jesus is firstborn among all of us in a way that we will never be. He is the one and only Messiah. Only he accomplishes redemption. He is the only true one son of God. He is our big brother. He paves the way for us in a way that no one else could. I have two older brothers. I always loved it. I'm the baby Two older, I always loved having older brothers because they could go to things first. They did high school first, and it wasn't as scary to me. I went to college, and one of my older big brothers was there on campus doing his Ph.D. work, and it was very comforting to me. I loved knowing that someone else had gone first. And this is what Jesus does for us, but he does it in a phenomenal, redemptive, one-of-a-kind, only Jesus could do it type of way. Now, what does that matter? Two reasons, two things I thought of here. One I saw recently, I was doing, uh, watching a uh, Ask Pastor John podcast. Check it out, it's a good podcast. But the question came up, why does it matter that Jesus is my big brother? And here was the answer given by Pastor John Piper. He said, knowing Jesus as your big brother gives weight and wonder to our worship of the Son. His combination of oneness with us as we are conformed to his image and the difference from us in being the firstborn in the fullness sense of the highest of the kings of the earth. Our elder brother is one with us and yet infinitely above us. 
And it is this conjunction of those two things, oneness and above us, that gives him a peculiar glory that we worship. In other words, there's a nuance of who Christ is that gives his glory another facet as you see him as older brother. But here is another benefit of seeing Jesus as an older brother, as having your identity as little sisters and little brothers to Jesus. We find this in what might be your new favorite verse, Hebrews 2.11. Hebrews 2.11, the author says this. It's amazing about Jesus. You know what he says? He says, Jesus, Hebrews is all about how Jesus is better and how Jesus is great. Hebrews 2.11, the author says, Jesus is not ashamed to call his people brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Why? I look at my life sometimes and I mess up. I sin against God. I think, oh, is God ashamed to call me brother? Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers. Why? Because he knows your story is not yet finished. Hebrews 2 talks about Jesus sanctifying his people. Because if you're in Christ, the Spirit is working to make you more like the holy Jesus. In other words, your story has a hero's ending. Why? Because in Christ, you take part in his victory over sin and death. Satan, as he is victor, so one day you shall also be. That's the glory of embracing your identity as a little brother or little sister to Jesus. Paul makes it clear in verse 30 of Romans 8. He says, those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's he talking about there? Well, notice the link in this golden chain. And think about your own experience with Jesus. That might be helpful. Paul begins with, your predestination. Well, I don't remember my predestination. I wasn't there. But he moves. He says, everybody who's predestined was called to Jesus. That I remember. I remember a point where I saw Jesus as what I wanted. And he graciously showed that to me, right? He called me to himself. And Paul says, whoever he called, those he justified. What's justified mean? Well, that's when God declares you right with him because he's given you the righteousness of Jesus. I got a category for that. That has happened. I'm living now through the righteousness of Jesus, not my own. Then there's one other connection. He said, well, if you've been justified, then you've also, listen carefully, you've also been glorified. Now, that's hard for me because he said glorified in the past tense, and yet I still know I'm waiting for glory, right? Why did he say, you've been glorified? I know I've been justified, but have I really been glorified? Yes, yes, Paul can say that. Why? He's using the language of a guarantee. Jesus has guaranteed your glory because as your big brother, he went and he grabbed it for you. He accomplished it. What he is now doing, you one day will do. You will be with God in heaven. He is unabashed to call you brothers because he himself 
is the guarantee. He knows how your story ends. When Jesus looks at you, he looks at you and he sees what you will become to give you a lot of hope if you're struggling with sin, if your life is broken, if you've messed up and you're now living in the consequences. Jesus looks at you at what you will be in being conformed to his own image and he is not ashamed. Your destiny is to be like Jesus. Your glory must happen because you are little sisters and brothers to Jesus. And it will happen with your body perfected, finally sinless, fully liberated, affections no longer divided, new heavens and a new earth at your feet, standing in the presence of Christ and God himself. That is your glory. And Jesus has accomplished that as your big brother. And so my hope today, friends, is just to lay out before you this notion that in Christ, you gain a new and true family identity. This week, it'll be my prayer for us together, corporately, that you find yourself resting as adopted children of God, as a brotherhood and sisterhood, and little brothers and sisters to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray prayer of adoration. We love who you are in Jesus to us. We're thankful the Spirit has come. Jesus has done what no other could do in justifying us, glorifying us. So thankful. And we confess. We confess that our hearts truly are prone to wander away from this notion of family we ask, God, that you would come, so thankful of who you made us, and that ask that you would just come this week and remind us of these realities. We are your children, we are your children, we are your children, and with children comes an inheritance, comes with benefits. So just remind us of that as we go throughout our week this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.